The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line, at least for now. This is episode 57 of Squawk Ident, recorded on Saturday, October 3rd, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. Today, we celebrate a remarkable milestone. Today marks the one-year pod-aversary of the Squawk Ident podcast. Here to help me in hosting the show today is our very own Squawk Ident co-host, Captain Roger. Also joining in on the conversation today is a special guest that we had on the podcast for episode 52, Race, Fly, Build. Here to update us on his progress with the fabrication of his Lancer legacy, we shall welcome back to the show, John Gruber. But first, let's start off the show today by introducing one of my fantastic Squawk Ident co-hosts. He's an exceptional aviator, a professional CFI and MEI flight instructor a former Embraer 145 airline pilot, a King Air instructor, a Falcon commander, a captain, and a corporate operator as well. He joins us from his layover in Rogers, Northwest Arkansas. Please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Roger, how you doing? Thanks, Tony. I'm doing all right. It's great to be here. I'm I'm honored to be part of your one-year potiversary. Yeah, pretty I mean, amazing. It's just kind of flown by, hasn't it? It has. You know, I remember being on, I think it was what, episode seven or something. And I can't believe that that was, and that wasn't too long after you'd started, but it, yeah. it's, it's, it's been an interesting ride since then. I mean, to, to put it lightly, all kinds of things up, down, left, right, sideways. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot has times. happened in the world, you know, it, a lot has happened you know, in the world. Your first time on the show was episode eight. So if you, if you'd like to hear episode more eight. about Roger's story and how his journey in aviation all got started, I encourage you to go back after this podcast and go back to episode eight and check it out. That one's uh, entitled 
surviving furloughs, bird strikes, and bad schedules back in November 8th of 2019. You know, we probably should have put some money down on that because those topics are very true to this very day, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's... um. It just shows you can never predict what life is, what's going to happen in the world and life. I mean, who would have thought some of this stuff was going to come back around? You yeah, know? it's all about the journey. I mean, it's not the destination and, and that it couldn't be more of a better example of, uh, you know, how we aviators survive the ups and downs and the cyclical nature of this industry. Yep. And you just got to keep going and, and see it through to the other side. Um, and, you know, on that note, I know a lot of people right now are, are scared and you know my heart and thoughts prayers go out to to everyone that's going to be affected by this um job wise health wise whatever it might be because i know a lot of people are, are scared right yeah. now yeah for sure it'll well there is another side there is you know, a lot of a lot of people have gone through this and that would be i guess my even my final words on that there there is always another side to it this is a cyclical industry and it will go back up again. Yes. And, and I feel that we are at the very cusp of it changing. And unfortunately, I don't think as we were predicting months and months ago that it was going to be a rubber band effect and we were going to come back to this uh, industry and just bounce back like as if nothing happened. I just don't see that happening anymore. A lot of the experts that um, I followed on television have said the same thing. Uh, so let's just see what happens. Um, but yeah, we're resilient, we're strong and we're stronger together. So let's keep that in our thoughts moving forward. And I really do Absolutely. feel that this industry will continue to flourish as time comes. As it always, as it always will yeah. and always has before. Yeah. Well, also joining us today, I am very excited to welcome back to the show, a featured guest from episode 52, Race, Fly, Build where we had the privilege to hear about his journey in aviation and how he has more recently turned some time away from his airline career into an opportunity to build and fabricate his Lancer legacy. He has been chronicling his progress with an Instagram video log account where he updates us on his progress almost every day. I'm, I'm just absolutely amazed on, on how far he's come in such a short period of time. He joins us to update us on his progresses, the challenges that he has faced in transporting the airplane via a rental truck from AI Systems in Redmond, Oregon, to his home airport in Aurora, Illinois. Please help us in welcoming back to the show, Mr. John Gruber. John, how the heck you doing? I'm just enjoying a nice, cool Saturday morning here in Chicago. Yeah, you know, enjoy it because I'm. I saw from some of your recent posts, you were out flying and. You know, you had this flannel on, you're nice and warm and bundled up. Meanwhile, it's yeah. supposed to be 102 degrees today at my house. <laughs> oh. Like, oh my yeah, God. we've gotten the fall crisp air in the last couple of days. So it's been you know, a nice change of pace. You know, I get to get my pumpkin spice latte and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Are you a are you a full flavor pumpkin spice latte guy? No, gosh, no. I, or do you want pump it? Because I can't, I can't do it. I do like I one, a, one a season just to say, yes, I had a pumpkin spice latte at the five bucks. Um, but it, it kind of grosses me out halfway through. It's just all sugar and syrup and <laughs> I can't do yeah, it. Yeah, No, thanks. I can't do it. <laughs> I'm not that basic. <laughs> nice. Well, Hey man, thank you for being here today. Uh, mm -hmm. love 
having you back. I really did enjoy the the ability to talk to you on the first time we got together for the podcast and see how far you've come with this build and you know catching up with you is is a great opportunity here and I just want to say thank you. So let's start out. Well, yeah, I mean, since since the first interview, yeah, it's been great. You know, the, the sponsorships have been flooding in. You know, Garmin's been talking to me. NASA's been talking about doing wind tunnel. This is all what I would say if any of that happened. You know, but, you it, know. this is what the podcast is about. That's it. You know, you know? helping, exactly. helping yeah, people out, getting yeah. sponsorships to come yeah. in because we are a uh, pretty famous, well-known um you know, we're pretty in high, pretty high demand. Hey, you know, you can lose the sarcasm, fellas, because I got at least ten followers. All right, that's awesome. More than you, you know, that's, I do. that's that's ten a year. I mean, just think in a hundred years, that's what a thousand. Now I just have to extend my lifespan and keep up with the technology. That's it. That's it. Well, you know, the <laughs> uh, you guys, I love it. No, I, I no, it. it was it's cool. Uh, this, the uh, response from your podcast and, you know, seeing the episodes and stuff, it's been great. You know, the guys um, have hit me up and everyone's got a lot of questions. So I've started tailoring some videos and stuff to kind of some questions and things like that, that have happened from the interview and other vlog videos I've yeah. done. Did, did Breitling uh, contact you? Cause you know, after that episode, they wanted me to be their official. They said, John's out and you're in. And I was like, cool. I'm actually, I'm not allowed to talk about it right oh, okay. now. There's been some NDAs. And so my, my legal team's working on that right now. So, okay. but you know, as soon as I'm able to discuss that, I'll get back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Omega and Rolex contacts me too, but you know, I decisions, decisions, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? You know, you know. So let's talk about this build. You know, you, you've come a long mm-hmm. way and God, you know, as you were posting, you, you know, we talked a little bit on the phone about how you were going to transport this aircraft that you've, you know, put your blood, sweat and tears literally into this airplane build. And, you know, now you have to put it on the rotisserie and get that to fit in the back of a rental box truck. And you're posting photos and, and videos. And I'm like, that's not going to fit. How's that going to fit? And you made it fit by like, what was the clearance on that thing? Inches, wasn't it? About three, three, uh, three quarters of an inch uh, on either side of the plane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, man, my hat's off to you. And, you know, the help that you had, I'm sure, you know, you're very appreciative because those guys worked hard to get that to fit in there and not have any incidences uh, loading it mm-hmm. onto the truck. And then I thought to myself, you know, you, you, were, you were kind of keeping me updated on your journey uh, from Oregon back to Illinois. And, and, you know, every once in a while, you're like, "Hey, I'm listening to this podcast," and you send me a, a photo from the uh, from the podcast player, and and uh, I just thought, "How are you going to get it off the the truck?" Do you, I hope you have help at your home airport? And of course, you know, without fail, you had uh, plenty of help getting uh, that aircraft off the back of the truck and into the hangar. But that's a big adjustment. You went from having a professional team there to assist you in any way they possibly could to now really being solo on this build. How's that challenge been for you? It's, you know, it's very different now, you know, and, and yeah, we can talk about kind of the transport and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, to your question, you know, I had any, any amounts of intellectual you know, just guys knowing what was going on, uh, to every facet of this airplane to now it's just me. So where I was able to work a lot more efficiency or efficient in, uh, in Redmond now 
Uh, I take a lot more time in saying, okay, you know, instead of something taking an hour, it'll take me four hours. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'll have to look at something 17 different ways before I'm comfortable with drilling that hole or cutting that, you know, piece out or aligning this. Uh, cause before I'd have somebody looking over my shoulder and say, yep, nope, it looks good. You know, cut it, let's go. But now it's, I'm the one that makes the decision wholly. And, um, so I have to pay, not necessarily pay a lot more attention, but I have to be a lot more confident in what I'm doing to make sure that I want to proceed forward with that. Yeah. You know, it, it really goes to the measure 50 times cut once. <laughs> yeah, know, absolutely. Homage. But let's talk about that, that journey that you had, you know, you finished up in mm-hmm. Redmond from the last show. Um, was that kind of bittersweet to be able to go back home? Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, it was, I enjoy, I was out there for the better part of three months. I think the plane was out there for about four and a half or five months, but I, I spent, yeah, I want to say it was like 92 days of build time something like that out there. And, you know, I had a routine, you know, I, I had an Airbnb, I'd wake up, make myself one egg with, you know, veg, veggies and then head out to the hangar and, you know, work for 12, 14, 16 hours, whatever the, the day kind of, you know, entailed, go back, take a shower and sleep and do it all over again. Um, and it was beautiful out there. I love being out there, really nice people and great guys to work with. Um, so yeah, that was kind of very much a chapter, a very small chapter of my life and a you know very big chapter of this airplane build. So that's kind of cool to have that. Um, but being back here, it's it's just, it's different. You know, I'm working on the same project, but it feels completely different now just because it's, you know, the my surroundings are a lot different. I'm, you know, I'm working with my own supplies. I'm having to kind of figure out what tools I need, what I don't need, um, what I can make do with. So it's... Um, it's it's a different feel on the same build. Yeah. Let's talk about the drive. You picked up, loaded the aircraft, and were you by yourself driving across the country? So we spent, um, it probably took maybe a day and a half to get the airplane loaded just because, you know, there's boxes, there's equipment, there's just all sorts of parts for the airplane. Um, but I had all the guys at AI Systems in Redmond uh, were helping me load and because it took... I think five or six of us and a forklift to get the airplane in there. And, you know, like we said, the clearance of getting in the airplane, getting the airplane in the truck on a side was very, very tight. And all these guys are very educated on that. Um, and fortunately through their knowledge, we knew it was going to fit. It's been done before. And it, I was told it was going to be very tight, you know, but it, it'll fit. So I got this 26 foot, you know, Penske truck and it fit, but it was very tight. It's exactly what they said. Uh, but once I got it fully loaded, I had a, another, um, a legacy airline pilot, uh, a different legacy airline pilot, uh, flew out to Redmond and joined me for the drive. And we just kind of bought a bunch of beef jerky and, you know, corn nuts and started driving. <laughs> and, uh, I think the next, the next, uh, what is two, it took us two and a, only two and a half days, um, uh, to do the full drive. Yeah. I think it was like 56 hours or something total. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, we did it. We did the whole thing in under 50 hours. That's what it was. Um, but yeah, we just kind of hammered it out, got two hotel rooms, uh, along the way. And during kind of massive COVID times, hotels were extremely inexpensive. Uh, we stayed in Salt Lake one night and then we stayed in, uh, just, uh, Omaha, just outside of Omaha the second night. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really great having someone to join me. And I uh, thank my buddy, Brian, for joining me to do that because we were able to swap out driving and uh, just kind of hammer it out. And 
get this very, I will call it a very stressful time behind me because the transporting of something like this to not have something get broken, nicked, scratched, something like that is, you know, a big deal. Yeah, for sure. So you, I see you, you got the rudder pedals, at least the rudder pedal assembly installed. And that was uh, pretty nerve wracking, wasn't it? Having to cut through the bulkhead there and, and, and get it all sorted. How did that process work for you? So once again, kind of coming from Oregon with AI systems and then, you know, having two or three guys that can hold things, we can all, we can all have three sets of eyes on something to make sure it's level and set, uh, to where I was doing this one all by myself. Um, which you've got this rudder pedal assembly that goes in the front, front half of the fuselage right over there. And, um, so to get that, you have to have it level with the aircraft. And so you're trying to hold this in position and find level and then find level on the aircraft to make sure that they're relatively uh, the same. Uh, and then, yeah, you're, you're drilling holes through the fuselage, you're drilling holes through the firewall. And um, the process is really just time. And I probably spent two hours moving things just, you know, a quarter of an inch up this one, a quarter of an inch down, and then, you know, moving it to the left or the right. Um, because this is a, an integral flight control, you know, it's, it's one of your major flight controls. So, you know, I, I set up pillows to be, you know, for my seat to see where I'm going to actually sit in the airplane and kind of fit how my legs are going to sit, where my toes are going to hit the rudder pedals or the brakes. Uh, so there were, there was a lot of, cause once I drilled those holes, that's where the rudder pedals are going to be. And, um, it's, uh, it, it all worked out. And I, I mean, it won't fully know until I have upholstery in there and sitting there and, um, fully set up, but I've got it as best I can. And I, I think it's pretty good. It's going to work out and they're fully adjustable so I can move them forward and back. So that gives me a lot of leeway. Yeah. You had mentioned you had put in someone who was what, six foot four in there to just make sure uh six, six two, two yeah. yeah six two and and size 13 shoes because i the whole point of having these kind of upgraded rudder pedals is that obviously the airplane is going to be set up for me but if i have somebody in the right seat that wants to join me that's you know taller or bigger or bigger feet or longer legs uh i can adjust it because one of the biggest complaints people have of the lancer legacy is um with the standard uh floor mounted rudder pedals there was a lack of room uh leg room and your knees would get bound up mm -hmm. so this what i did uh gives kind of exponential uh leg room for guys even that big so wow that reminds me of my first car my my yeah. very first car uh we bought a, a fiat x19 1974 mm -hmm. fiat x19 and uh you know it's a stick shift and if you were taller than five nine, that you're going to have problems just getting in the car. Mm -hmm. And I'm five nine, five five nine and a half, whatever it is, with shoes on. And so, yeah, that car, like what you're saying with the with the Lancer with the standard rudder pedals. You know, if you if you're over a certain height or if you have big shoes on, big boots on, there's no way you're going to be able to operate the vehicle safely. So mm -hmm. yeah. It, it, Good job on the upgrading on the rudder pedals. That's I, and the color of the metal. What is it coated with? Uh, that's anodized gold, as far as I know. I don't believe. Yeah, it's too thin to be powder coated. So yeah, this the, these are made by Starflight, and it, yeah, it's an anodized gold. Um, and they're they're very nice. I mean, you got the bell crank to adjust the uh, height and everything. But yeah, they're they're a great piece. So I'm I'm excited to have been able to get them. I got them through a trade with another pilot that's building a Lancer, and he didn't need them. He want he's building uh, his aircraft actually didn't fit those. So um, I was able to get those. So um, it, I was very fortunate in that. 
Yeah. You know, it just, I like that little crank. It's kind of like uh, being in a 737, adjusting rudder pedals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is similar. Yeah. So what if up to this point in the build, you know, and you last time you talked about what you had planned to do and you were going to kind of slow down the process of the build because obviously what's going on in the, in the industry and in the culture and possibly even your ability to, to bring in regular income with legacy airlines. And, you know, today is a big day, you know, here we are recording and I'm getting these news flashes on my phone, you know, is, is this cares going to pass? Is it not going to pass? You know, Nancy says uh, it's intimate. Don't, don't, furlough anyone, you know, at, at these mainline carriers out there like United and American and Delta and whatnot, just, just stay the course and give us time. It's going to pass. And, and then I'm also getting notifications that, nope, it's Rand Paul just blocked it, you know? So it's like, oh my God, you know, I, I almost want to just turn it all off, wait until it's a done deal. And somebody tells me, oh yeah, last week they passed it, you know, but because it directly affects us, um, you know, it's something that I do want to keep at least, you know, one ear open to it. And so this build, you've, you've mentioned that you were going to kind of slow down the process, but here you are still building. What are you getting done? So there, there's a lot of work that can be done, quote unquote, for free. You know, my, my, my labor hours don't cost me anything. Um, and every, every minute I'm here, I'm learning something. And part of the transition from Oregon to here is getting, kind of my workshop area set up and being able to work more efficiently. So there's, um, you know, yesterday I was at Hobby Lobby getting, you know, a mat to do cutting, uh, fabric cutters and things like that, uh, which are fortunately very, uh, you know, relatively inexpensive. Um, but there's, you know, sanding, prepping, measuring. Uh, I mean, I, there's probably 10,000 objectives that I can get done of, which I'm only thinking about five right now, but that I can do without spending money. There's still a lot of money to be spent on this project, but fortunately there's a lot of work I can do to um, uh, progress because you want to keep this thing moving. But, you know, without, like you said, having knowledge of what our career is going to do in the next month, six months, year, I, I don't want to just be, you know, frivolously throwing finances at this thing until, I, you know, we know what the future holds to some extent. Yeah. And, and is the Lancer an experimental aircraft is it correct so yeah so the, what does that mean to those that may not understand what you know some people might listen to this podcast and go what's an experimental aircraft you know does that mean you're a test pilot i mean what does that entail so you've got you know you let's say if you've ever flown for flown on southwest airlines or any other major airline you've flown in a, a boeing 737 for example and that aircraft has gone through a strict regimen of faa requirements to become a certified aircraft so it it complies with the faa regulations of you know standard aircraft uh this lancer legacy that sits behind me is under the category of experimental so um what that means is it it physically doesn't comply with the FAA standard aircraft manufacturing. Um, there's a lot of nuances of that, which I, I can't claim that I know, but this is an experimental aircraft that hasn't gone through the certification process. And therefore the FAA says, all right, well, it's not a certified aircraft. It's experimental. Now that could mean, um, it could be as simple as somebody gluing, gluing a couple of popsicle sticks together and covering it in fabric to say, yep, this thing will fly. That's an experimental aircraft to something as advanced as a, a legacy, a Lancer legacy, where 
it's plans built. It's, it's a well-known airframe and it's gone through all sorts of structural testing, flight testing, all this kind of stuff. But it, and so it can fly. It's a, it's a known quantity. It just hasn't gone through the FA standard certification process. Um, so there's all sorts of levels of, um, experimental aircraft from plans built, which is what this is to just, uh, some guy saying, well, I'm, I'm going to build something from scratch and see if it'll fly. Yeah. Well, you know, my hat's off to you because the work that you've put in to this build and the hours that you're putting into it is just amazing. Um, and I can only imagine the satisfaction that you can get from the first day you get to go out and fly it around the pattern. That's going to be amazing. And uh, let me know when that happens. Uh, that might be a yeah. I, that might be a, a a little quick flight to just to witness that. That would be great. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I mean, it's I look at it like it's going to be ten years down the road. I'm hoping it's much sooner than that. But that's uh, you know, I just I'm purposely have that tunnel vision to just kind of eat the elephant one bite at a time and uh, get what I get what I can get done in each little section, and then eventually. Um, it'll all come together. I've got guys that come through here and they're like, Oh, it doesn't look like you've done much in the last week. And I'm like, well, thanks a lot. But then, <laughs> you know, it, but I, uh, you know, I know all the work and I, that's gone into it, but then I'll, I'll like when I put the rudder pedals in like, Oh wow, that's starting to look like an airplane, you know? So there's all these steps forward, steps back, you know, two steps forward, one step back, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but a lot of building is installing something, getting it fit and then pulling it right back out. And then you won't touch it for, you know, six months or whatever. Yeah. So, um, kind of like with the rudder pedals, I'm getting, I've got the position set and now I need to build the mounting structure. I'll get it mounted, you know, and fully set in place and then I'll pull it back out and it probably won't be back in the airplane for a couple months. Now, and with your V logs, I've noticed that you have a station in the hangar, just a nice clean table where you're mixing all of your resins and, you know, it looks like really like a chemical lab, you know, you've got the scale and all that. How good have you gotten at this process? By now, you must be an expert. Yeah, I mean, when I was out in Oregon, you know, they, they were a full composite shop. So they had, and I'm trying to mimic what they had because, you know, their system works very well. Um, so I've got, uh, I'll put the camera over on that. But the um, I've set up kind of a station. This is very rudimentary compared to what they had in Oregon. But I've got, um, you know, I've kind of built up the supplies that I need as far as this is uh, my epoxy resin. It's actually in a wooden box that has a light in there to keep it warm so it doesn't crystallize. But I've got my resin. I've got a scale, mold release, uh, wax, gloves, you know, a cutting table, um, plastic, micro or flocks like cotton or ceramic beads, fiberglass, um, peel ply stuff, scissors, shears. Uh, I've got rolls of carbon fiber. Um, so, and, you know, paintbrushes for putting resin, mixing cups, all that kind of stuff. So this is all the setup of that is really just based off of what I was using in Oregon and you know, what works and yeah, it's, it's nice to have all that stuff now because that allows me to work a lot more efficiently. I mean, it took me a couple of weeks to kind of get that setup going, but it's, uh, that allows me because before I had all this stuff, I couldn't do, you know, resin work or epoxy work and, you know, fiber, carbon fiber and fiberglass. So now that I can do that, it's like, oh, great. I can actually move forward with some things. Um, you know, later today, I'm going to be doing fiberglass uh, layups on the firewall over the hard points I did for the rudder, uh, rudder pedal mounts. So that 
to be able to say, Oh, yep. I've got everything I need. I can just go do work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fantastic. Cause that is probably one of the most frustrating things about building. You come in the morning and you say, okay, I want to get this, this, this done. You know, I want to get three things done today. Well, you get started on the first thing and five minutes into working on it, you're like, well, crap, I need, I need this tool. I need this supply or I need this setup to do it. And then you can't do it. And so your whole day shot, you got to spend three hours running to the store to get something. Um, so instead of being able to get three things done in the day you planned on it, you're only able to get half of one thing done. So it's a big change in, you know, how efficiently I can or can't work. Yeah. And you mentioned like, you know, you have to go and grab a, a part or a tool or a bolt. You can't just go mm-hmm. down to AutoZone or, or or O'Reilly and pick up a bolt. It has to be uh, manufactured for aviation, and and that's not easy. Not only is it not easy to to have to go to a supplies an aviation supply store to pick that up. Sometimes they won't have that on hand. You might have to order it. But at the same time, the cost of this material, because it's aviation or DOT specific or FAA specific. The cost skyrockets. How have you been coping with having to pick up a part here and there? Yeah, the, there's for the most part, this kit has come with uh, a lot of the hardware that's needed, which is great. Um, but when you start changing how you're building the airplane because some things work better than others, or you know how they built it changed from 20 years ago, um, yeah, there's. Uh, for example, hydraulic fittings, um, I'm doing a different setup than how they originally had it planned. So I need a different amount of hydraulic fittings that are in the kit. So yeah, you can't go to AutoZone. I got an ACE hardware just a half mile away. Too bad. I can't buy anything from there. Um, cause boy, would that be convenient? So, um, there's an aircraft spruce, which is an aircraft supply store about a 45 minute drive away. So yeah, if I need something in order to work on a specific thing, I need one fitting from that company. Well, I got to drive 45 minutes, you know, go pay $8 for a fitting and then drive back. And there, there goes two hours of my day. Um, you know, for example, here's just like one and fitting. This is, you know, hydraulic, um, flared end hydraulic fitting. And I needed four more of these T fittings. And they're back-ordered for aircraft spruce. So now I'm waiting two weeks to get this part as opposed to being able to, you know, just continue working. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're expensive parts. They're aviation grades. So that it's, yeah, you're not just going to O'Reilly's or AutoZone and just grabbing whatever bolts or washers off the shelf. Uh, you want to make sure that they're, it's the appropriate quality and rating for what I'm trying to do. Now, is there an inspection process after the bill is complete where someone has to come in and, you know, the FAA has to sign something to say anything about airworthiness? Or is this when you're complete with the bill, you're good to go? So, yes. And I've never had one inspected, so I've never seen it happen firsthand. Uh, but everything I've been told, to answer your question directly, yes, the aircraft gets inspected before it gets an airworthiness. Um, so an FA representative or a, a designated FA representative, like a DPE that gives check rides, there's the DAR, which is the maintenance side. So the FA say, hey, we don't have time to deal with your airplane. We're going to send out this designated representative. Um so they'll come out, look over the aircraft, and they're not really saying, well, you did a good job with this build. I think it'll fly. They're more or less looking at the FARs. Does it comply with the standard um, safety requirements of an aircraft? Like, does it have seatbelts? Does it have an ELT? Um, does it have, you know, the lights required or the instruments required for day VFR flight or night VFR flight? Um 
So like I said earlier, you could glue two popsicle sticks together and say, well, I, I want this to be an experimental aircraft. Well, the FAA representative would come out and say, well, does it have an ELT? Does it have seatbelts? Well, no, it doesn't. I'm not giving you an airworthiness certificate. Um, but uh, that process can take, you've got to file a bunch of paperwork and um, you know claim how it was built and all that kind of stuff. And then the guy will come out, inspect it, and hopefully give you a piece of paper that says, yep, good luck. You, you can go do uh, phase one uh, testing uh, of your aircraft. Really, that inspection is not specific to the aircraft at all it's more of just a generic inspection for seat belts for for this that for safety but only in a generic sense not from an aircraft specific sense as i understand it yes there it's not like they're gonna go and look at my canopy latch mechanism and like dissect it and be like do we think this spring is preloaded hard enough to hold that canopy closed? Is, is your own over center lock, you know, appropriate for the canopy that you have, you know, I just right. very minute details. Um, they're, they're not gonna, as, as I've been told, that's not what they're looking at. They're looking at, well, Hey, I can shake the wing. You know, it, it doesn't fall it off. Doesn't fall off. <laughs> yeah. It, um, I'm, I'm sure it very much depends on the person who's inspecting yeah. it. You know, I'm sure some people want to get in there and look at the nooks and crannies and things like that. Um, but I think the letter of the law, they're looking for the legality things and the overall structure. They're looking for uh, tomato of flames. What? Yeah. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> Whoa, I just went way back. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a back one. Yeah. So what is tomato of flames? What the heck is Tony talking about over here? Well, when you become a private pilot and you start learning about all the complexities of aviation, whether that be aerodynamics, weather, aircraft, VFR, IFR, what does that mean? Visual flight rules, right? So if you have an aircraft that is certified for visual flight rules, the FAA under their Title 14 indicates that there are certain instruments that you must have installed and working in your airplane in order for that airplane to be airworthy. And some of that equipment includes, in the way we remember it, uh, they used to teach this, uh, I don't know if they still do, but there's an acronym, Tomato of Flames, because we don't have enough acronyms in aviation. We should always strive to put more acronyms into the mix. The first ones that we learn, one of them is called Tomato of Flames, and that is you have to have a tachometer, okay, so you know what the rotation or the RPM of the engine is. Uh, an oil temperature gauge, pretty important, you know, make sure if you have a high oil temperature that you can adjust maybe or land the aircraft as soon as possible before, you know, something else goes wrong. It's a, it's an indication that, Hey, you got hot oil, something's grinding, something's getting warm. There's too much friction here. Uh, you have manifold pressure gauge if applicable. What's manifold pressure? We're not going to get into that, but let's just say that it, there are different types of propeller systems in the aircraft. There's a constant speed propeller and a variable speed propeller, or constant pitch or variable pitch prop. And depending on what you have installed in your aircraft, you have to learn how to use and manipulate the manifold pressure. Um, then there's the altimeter. You got to know how, what your altitude is, right? Especially when you're flying around, you got to know, you know what altitude you are at and what's the safe altitude. Temperature gauge for each engine applicable. So, you know, uh, internal temperature gauge. Oil pressure gauge. Oil pressure is crucial on any uh, engine with moving parts. Airspeed indicator. Got to know how fast you're going, right? You don't want to stall or overspeed the aircraft. Fuel gauges, landing gear position indicator, if applicable. The anti-collision lights, 
And this is for small aircraft certified after March 11th of 1996. So any airplane built after 1996 has to have anti-collision lights. These are the either the beacon or the strobes, you know, that are mounted either above and below the, the fuselage or on the wingtips uh, or in the rear of the fuselage as well. Uh, you have to have a magnetic compass. Wow, magnetic compass, man. Yeah, you have to have it in case you lose your generator or alternator. Uh, you have no electrical system whatsoever in the aircraft. The engine will continue to run if that's the only issue because it has magnetos. So there's enough spark being generated for the spark plugs or what have you. And so now if you have a zero electricity on the aircraft because of a malfunctioning generator or battery or electrical system of some kind, you have at least a magnetic compass to point the aircraft in the right direction to go and land at a suitable airfield uh, by consulting your paper charts. That's why it's so crucial to have paper charts in your aircraft. Don't just sit there flying around with your GPS. Oh, I got GPS, no problem. Well, what happens if you have an electrical emergency? And now you don't have a moving map display, and the only thing you have is your eyeballs looking outside the window of the aircraft. Well, you should always have paper charts as a backup wherever you're going and or an, a secondary source which now the iPad is a secondary source. So you could always pull up an iPad because it's an independent electrical system there. Uh, you also need an ELT, the emergency locator transponder. This is a, in case there's a very high impact from a landing, maybe a hard landing sometimes, not saying anything. But you know, if you have a, an off-field landing, high impact, high Gs, the ELT will automatically start transmitting. Uh, and we've slowly started going to this new ELT. It's no longer, uh, the uh, John, you're probably more versed in this, or maybe Roger. The ELTs of yesteryear were a radio frequency. I think it was 121.5, and it would transmit. Yep. And now, aren't the new ELTs a little bit different? Yeah, I'm trying to, I've got one here. Um, yeah, I can't find it right now. But yeah, the new uh the new frequency, it's one to one point five, and then it's like three twenty-two something, I think. I mean, please don't quote me on that, okay. but I can't find so it. So it's multiple um, frequencies. Yeah. yeah, correct. And it it also it it provides data within that um second frequency as far as uh, GPS position. Mm. So they can pinpoint not just through triangulation of radio frequency, but they can pinpoint where you mm -hmm. are because of the location being transmitted. And then the last one is seatbelts. Got to have seatbelts, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So and and there are aircraft that are predate shoulder harnesses and whatnot. And they just had like like cars, you know, classic cars. You get in the car and you're like, well, where is the seatbelt? Well, it's just a lap belt, if anything. Um, some airplanes do fall under that category if they're vintage aircraft, but Every airplane has to have at least seatbelts. So Tomato A-Flames is, is the acronym. And your aircraft that you're building must have these things installed. And when they come and do the inspection, really, isn't that the bulk of what they're looking for is to make sure that you have all the required equipment. The aircraft is built in a manner which it is safe to operate. There's no like duct tape holding the wings together, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're not, they're not saying by signing the paper saying hey this thing has a special airworthiness certificate they're not saying it's going to fly well fly straight they're just saying yes this complies with the regulations that we need it to good luck go fly it you know we're all counting on you that's it yeah yeah exactly <laughs> that, that's that's essentially what it is it's the 
it's it's a license to learn, license to fly, and you know, hope it works out well for you. <laughs> well, can you give us a tour of the uh, the aircraft there in the hangar? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. So the the last time it hadn't been painted, correct? It had not been painted. You were yeah, it was, yeah. You're so, working on the doors yeah. on the uh, the forward landing gear. You had just placed the mm-hmm. uh, had you were placing the hydraulic lines for the main gear, and you were just mm-hmm. finishing on prepping for paint. Yeah. So yeah, the last time you guys looked at it, it was all sorts of different colors, body work, um, and body filler and things like that. So since then I've gotten, uh, the aircraft primed. So it's got two coats of epoxy primer, um, along the whole thing. I've got tools and stuff set up here. Um, but the second baggage window has been bonded in that wasn't there the last time either. Um, and, uh, so I've been working on a lot of things with the uh, fuselage inside the fuselage. I routed a lot of the hydraulic lines and fuel lines uh, in between the, the aft spar and the main spar here. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that. I mean, I've, I had just a couple of days ago, I had all these lines in here, but they've been pulled out since. And you can see my very nice and plush interior that I've got set up on my seat here. Nice. So um, I, that's, you know, that's going to be show winning right there. Uh, and then my firewall, you can possibly see where my hard points are for the rudder pedals, but I've got these uh, flanges here where my rudder pedals go across. Um, so yeah, so the last time you saw it, the bodywork was in progress, uh, but now fortunately it's all been painted and the, the majority, I'd say 95% of that bodywork's done. There's still some minor flaws in some of the areas that need to be sanded out and reprimed. Uh, but that's the, this is a huge accomplishment to have this aircraft looking this way. Um, now the, the fact that I've got it painted and it's all clean, you know, I have to be very careful as I'm getting in and out of it, working with it, things like that. So there's, uh, there's an element of kind of not worry, but being very careful. For example, I had to drill two holes to mount my rudder pedal mounting flanges so now i've already put two holes in my paint that's part of the process and that's why this is just prime primed um and then um where you can kind of see my whole shop set up here now um but the canopy and the wings have kind of just been hanging out because i'm trying to get a lot of stuff done inside the fuselage um and then i've got it on the rotisserie right now as you can see you know where i can move the aircraft, uh, flip it upside down if I want. And, um, I'm having my gear struts rebuilt out in Oregon right now because the seals are 20 years old. Um, so when that's done, I'll be able to get the gear back on and uh, be able to get this back on its wheels so I can start doing more, uh, things with the gear to verify gear swings and clearances and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, a tremendous amount of work. And the fact that you're, you know, you've tackled this mm-hmm. project, you know, basically on your own. I mean, you've had the help, I understand, but you're at this point, you're moving forward solo. What's what's the biggest fear for you? Well, there there's the the fear of the making the one mistake that's going to make this completely unflyable. You know, there's that if I drill this hole, is that going to ruin the entire aircraft and just Every, every hour that I've spent for the past six months is now wasted because this thing is just a brick. Um, now, there's very few things that I can do that would cause that, um, but it's still, it's in the back of your mind, like, hey, if, is what I'm doing right now going to cause an irreversible chain of events that'll make this thing just, you know, not fly? Um, but 
wanting to do well. I mean, when I was out in Oregon with the guys uh, at AI Systems, they had a very high level of craftsmanship, workmanship, professionalism, and uh, just the quality of the product that they put out is great. And so everything that's been done up to when I got here has been, you know, I'd give it a, you know, an A minus, let's say for, you know, quite, it's, it's not, this is not a hundred percent show quality, you know, top tier, you know, thing. It's very, very close. Um, so my goal now that I'm working on it myself, I want to try and keep that level of quality because everything you see here has been the combined work of myself and AI systems. So, I don't want everything past that. I don't want to see the quality just degrade and where someone's like, oh, well, yeah, you can see where he just started working on it on his own. Because <laughs> you know, then that's an testament to my lack of ability. So I, I don't want that to happen. Yeah. So it, it, let's talk about your vlogs. I know you kind of tackled mm -hmm. this. You wanted to share your experience you know, with the world. And have you gained a lot of viewership on this? Is it really picked up, the, the vlogs? I mean, I've... Uh, I've got a, you know, Instagram, a couple hundred followers, Facebook, you know, however many, you know, friends I have that enjoy uh, watching this. And I've had uh, friends that I, you know, I haven't talked to in years, so, you know, let's say a decade, and they've written me a message on the side saying, hey, you know, could you do a video specifically about this or the, hey, this is really cool. I enjoy watching this. Um, you know, I, I hate to say it's an escape from the real world, but it's not political. It's not you know, one-sided, it's just, Hey, I'm doing this. This is kind of cool to me. I'm trying to share this. Um, and so I've had a lot of friends, uh, kind of commend on that. And I, I, I owe it to myself to document this because it's a big, big kind of accomplishment if I'm able to get this all done. Um, so it's an accomplishment for me to document it and then also to, to share it with other people. And, uh, I'm, I'm excited that I've gotten kind of the viewership that I've gotten. Um, I'm not, I'm doing it more for me than for, you know, the world at large, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad to share the progress of it, uh, because it does, it keeps me accountable too. you know, everybody's coming along for the ride. So if I screw something up, everybody gets to see my screw yeah. up. Uh, if I do something well, everybody gets to kind of enjoy that. And like you said earlier, the, when I fly this thing, I, I imagine there's going to be a lot of people that want to come out and just be like, you know what? I want to be a part of this. I've been a part of it for the last year in seeing you do it. I want to see it fly. Now that's going to make me nervous as hell. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm excited to have that to be part of this, uh, you know, process. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm totally cheering for you, man. This is a, a big project. You now have, you know, like you said, the responsibility to continue on and finish this. This is not something that you can go, ah, I'm not going to work on it for a while. Cause you're going to have people, you know, banging on your, your virtual door saying, Hey, <laughs> I haven't seen a video in a while. What's going on? You know? Um, yeah. And, and Roger, you've, you've been in the GA community a long time. Have you ever had the opportunity to fly in a experimental aircraft like this or have uh, any students that own these kind of airplanes airplanes i have not personally ever been in one of them i've had a couple friends that have that have owned um some other ones um the rv series and that have flown around and to be honest everyone's been really happy with them i mean from a from a performance perspective these things are apparently little hot rods and you can fly around pretty fast. And everyone, the, the few people, I know, everyone might be a little bit of an overstatement, but the several people that I have known that have that have had and and built experimental airplanes have been extremely happy with them. Um, but however, like I say, I have not ever personally 
personally flown one at all. And stick around, we'll be right back to talk about magenta lines, near misses, and 737 automation right after the break. Recently, was listening to a podcast that uh, we here on the Squawk Ident uh, podcast. We all, all of us, uh, co-hosts and hosts, we, we all love listening to the APG podcast, the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. And what they do is they cover a lot of what's in the news in aviation news. And recently, they were talking about a seven thirty seven that uh, both autopilots failed. Actually, one. The captain's side autopilot was MEL'd, meaning uh, it wasn't working. The minimum equipment list allows uh, an aircraft operator to operate the aircraft with something that uh, may not be working. Uh, however, it doesn't affect the safety of the flight. They just use the redundant system. And that's what happened uh, in, in this situation with this 737. It was not a U.S. carrier that had this uh, happen, but... Um, it happened. And a couple minutes after takeoff, the first officer's side autopilot also failed. Now, you would think two 737 pilots, both autopilots fail. You hand fly. You aviate, right? The number one law of aviation for airmen is aviate, navigate, communicate. Okay? And that's really that's what's going on even with this uh, podcast where we're talking about aviation we're navigating the journey and we're communicating about it i mean it's it's the it's the basis and the foundation of every aviator's mental process when at the command of an aircraft the 737 pilots had a very hard time um and if i find it here uh, i will share with you. Actually, here it is. Um, September 8th of 2020, Flight Global uh, had an article about this, and I'll put the link in the show notes. The experienced crew struggled with instrument flight after a 737 lost the autopilots, um, and it turned into an air disaster. They had multiple approaches that they had to go missed, and uh, the, the ATC track of this flight path was all over the place. There are pilots that are so dependent on automation, on modern aircraft, that when it comes down to hand flying, they struggle. They struggle not just a little bit. And, and unfortunately, in this situation with the 737, they struggled and it should never have happened. And what I've seen over the years is there's a clear distinction when you get to the level of decades of experience in the cockpit. And that experience comes in that there are those pilots that maintain that GA experience, the hand flying out there at the local airport in a smaller aircraft. And then there are those pilots that all they do is, all, the only experience they get flying is flying a narrow body or, or a wide body aircraft for a major airline. And that's all they've done for maybe 10, 20, 30 years. So that experience 
is far from the GA experience. And when you have those two categories of pilots, there's a clear distinction in the hand flying abilities. Now, I'm not saying that's the rule and that's just, but I've noticed this personally that those that are out at the local airport on their days off or have own an airplane that they're out there in the pattern with their GA aircraft have a much easier time of hand flying an aircraft when the automation fails at a high level uh, technological aircraft. And so the fact that John, that you're building this airplane, that you're out at the airport constantly, you've owned other aircraft in the past. When it comes time to it, and you know you you're down the road with uh, your your pilot career at the mainline, it'll be noticeable. I truly believe that you know your hand flying abilities are going to be above par. They're just they're going to continue to excel, and I encourage those pilots that might be listening to the show have listened to the podcast in the past and myself included. I mean, it's been a long time since I've been in the GA community out there actually manipulating the controls of an aircraft. And I absolutely need to get back into it. And if I end up on a zero timeline here pretty soon, <laughs> I might have no choice but to go back and, and, and get into that world. But I do believe that flying GA, keeping your hand flying skills, your stick and rudder skills, current is crucial to a long successful aviation career for when these things happen these loss of automation happen on the flight deck it's it's not a big deal it's not a oh crap let's <clears throat> keep this airplane level in imc it's okay aviate what do you yeah do what you're trained to do <laughs> yeah roger uh what do you think of my assessment is that would you uh would you agree, or do you have uh, an opinion about that? I think that there could be an entire show devoted to that single topic. Okay, I'm writing this down. <laughs> um, the magenta line. Yeah, you know, we have, we have a saying about The that, thin magenta right? line. <laughs> children of the magenta, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a whole rabbit hole. I have seen both sides of it. Uh, just and that's just a, you know luck of the draw for for my career through aviation, having caught up you know through the typical GA, and then going in going into the airlines and then coming back into very much into the GA old school technology, um, back into the corporate world where I but I still have a foot in the old I still fly a nineteen I think it's a nineteen seventy nine King Air. And also having instructed um, for the for the five years now of teaching people in King Airs and, and the vast differences in, in avionics in King Airs. And, and just because of that, seeing the different people and the different equipment that they fly and their proficiency in flying an airplane, as well as some exposure with training a students from other cultures there is an entire rabbit hole to go down with that and kind of in a nutshell um back there was the air france airbus 330 that they crashed out in the atlantic kind of kind of exposed it initially i think that and going back to that 737 that you were just talking about it's like we you know we had 
we had a mistake in that Air France that, you know, hey, the pilot couldn't, couldn't fly this airplane. And if we talk about that 737 that you just brought up, well, the pilots couldn't, couldn't fly the airplane. And so what becomes our solution to that? Our solution is to say, hey, you know what? These pilots couldn't figure out how to fly the airplane. Our solution is let's try and figure out how to make the pilots not have to fly the airplane. Except then when something goes wrong, we get farther and farther and farther and farther away from pilots actually flying airplanes so that when things do go wrong, there's less of a chance that we actually know how to fix the problem. And the solution then is again, well, how can we make it that the, air, that the pilots fly the plane less? And it's kind of that, it just goes round and round in circles so that you're actually solving one problem, except when things go wrong, you're making the problem worse at the exact same time. Yeah. And I just, I wanted to just make sure I did a correction. I said that the airplane crashed um, and it wasn't a crash. It was actually the, the, air, the 737 that we mentioned. Um, it entered a right-hand circling south of the runway in altitudes between 6688 and 6440. So they were having a hard time maintaining altitude. Then proceeded to turn north, right-hound down leg before landing on runway 23 about 35 minutes after its original departure from Madrid. None of the 57 passengers and eight crew members were injured, uh, and the aircraft was undamaged. However, what made this um, such a an important topic and made it newsworthy was when you look at the flight path and you look at all of the flight data recorder information that shows variations in altitude, you know, shortly before the aircraft had departed, uh, that, I mean, it had pitch out, out, pitch attitudes as high as 11 degrees nose down in an airliner. That is just not, I mean, that's, you don't, you don't do that. How does that happen? Um, so that's what sparked the, the, uh, the controversy uh, on, uh, you know, hand flying abilities. And like you said, Roger, it, it, this is a very important detailed topic that, that like the, like the children of the magenta documentary that came out, you know, when did that come out back in the, in the seventies? It's definitely been a while well, Not now. the seventies. Well, it was 22 years ago. Um, 1998. Yeah, 98. Back in 90s. Back in the 90s. Which, which kind of makes sense. That's when GPS, you know, kind of started creeping into into the aviation world. Yeah. yeah Garmin 430s and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the WAS approaches. Yeah. And I think I've mentioned this before on the show. Um, I actually potentially could not be here today uh, because when my I was working on my instrument rating many moons ago, and uh, 20 years ago, and I was flying out of Deer Valley, and I think this is one of my very first episodes we talked about this, and I was flying in a Piper, uh, Piper, I think it was an Archer, and I had a Garmin 430, I think it was, it was the uh, color screen, is that a 430 or 530? Yeah, right? that's the standard, the standard. Uh, well, the 430 was a smaller screen, 530 was the Yeah, it's the 430, it was a smaller screen, mm -hmm. so on the radio stack, it had a 430, and we had to build time in order to work on your instrument, so I had my private, I was working on my instrument, and my instructor at the time says, hey, while you're flying along, you know, you're, you've got, you know, checkpoints and whatnot to do, you pro learn how to program the GPS, you know, and 
play with it a little bit. You know, obviously you don't do that when you're in the pattern climbing, descending or anything like that. But as you're flying along, you're, you got a 40 minute flight, puts it along uh, the Arizona, you know, valleys, um, learn it, use it. So here I was, uh, I requested flight following and, uh, the, the, I won't go into the whole story. You can go back and listen to it. I'll figure out which episode it was in, but here I was heads down solo in the cockpit flying along with flight following the Albuquerque center. And the radio transmission I heard was, uh, uh pop November, you know, two, four, five pop alpha, whatever it was, uh, target your six o'clock less than a mile. Suggest an immediate climb or descent, your targets will merge. And my response was from looking down was, What? You know, what? what, what, what? Say again? <laughs> so the air traffic controller repeated, uh, less, than a, you know, less than half a mile, your targets will merge. Suggest an immediate climb or descent. <laughs> I'm climbing. So full throttle, pull back on the stick, get as close to the VX as I could, maybe even a little bit less. I was freaking out. And as I pitched up, maybe about 400 feet off what my cruising altitude was, my VFR cruising altitude was, here comes another Piper intersecting my path and right under me, like literally right under me. It, it potentially could have been considered a near miss. Um, didn't rock their wings, didn't alter their course, nothing. And as I climbed above this airplane... And the controller is spitting out, you know, they're, they're, they're your six o'clock. Do you see them? Do you see them? They're, they're moving from left to right. Uh, no, I know. And then I finally saw the aircraft. I kind of rocked my wings to kind of see under me. And sure enough, there was this, this airplane. And who knows if they were on autopilot, not paying attention. Maybe they were looking at their Garmin 432. Um, and let me tell you, my eyes were out the rest. <laughs> I learned a very valuable lesson. My eyes were outside of that cockpit the rest of the way. I wasn't even going to look down at you know, other than changing a frequency here and then, um, and, uh, you know, regain my altitude and, and, uh, continue the flight as normal, but distractions happen. We, we absolutely can get sucked into this automation. This was, I was learning this Garmin GPS system in a single engine piston aircraft by myself trying to build time. And that could have been the end of me. Uh, it was something that happened very early on in my aviation career, and I've never forgotten that feeling uh, of absolute terror for a moment there. Um, so yeah, <laughs> you, you can get dependent upon it, and it could be distracting at the same time. Have you, have you fellows ever mm -hmm. uh, had an experience similar to that? Uh, not not mid-airs, but uh, you know, just trying to... You know, my goal, like you were talking about earlier, is always staying proficient at all levels of automation, uh, whether they're there for you or not. And uh, um, as a sim instructor and kind of check airmen back in the day, uh, kind of toying, not toying, but instructing students, uh, you know, at different levels of automation to see how they can handle it and give them that eye-opening experience of, hey, you don't have vertical guidance right now. What are you going to do? Or you don't have, you know, you're flying on raw data, let's say. and um, seeing how they're able to cope with that uh, and manage that you, you open up a lot of people's eyes uh, in their ability or lack of ability. And, you know, you train them to be more proficient when you do that. So from the training aspect, I've seen it quite a bit, you know, on the, on the good side and the bad. And Roger, I would mostly agree with, um, you know, what, what John just said, 
when, when you're in an instructing position of some kind, it, almost at an instrument level, um, whether that's in simulators at an airline or you know at lower levels or just as a as a double I, the instrument proficiency aspect I think is is the most important thing, and then the the GPS and all those layers can get added to it. But there's so many different layers to that, and there's different times when different things are going to fail or when things don't get programmed quite properly, and how people are going to respond to that is really in the end, I I think the mark of a true airman is, you know, actually I just had an incident the other day, um, you know, things weren't programmed properly. Do you notice that? What are your options? What are you going to do? You know, obviously, you know, I'm flying in a two pilot crew and, and it was my leg. And so it was kind of the other guy's responsibility to, to, to program the box, but there was two different times where that wasn't programmed properly. What are your options? We can't be flying the the autopilot cannot be flying anymore because the autopilot's taking bad information, you know, bad information in, bad information out. But trying to figure that out and be able to sort all that out, I think, is kind of like I said, the the hallmark of a true airman to be able to know a that it's going on and then b how to fix it. And that kind of goes back to your original point. Well, maybe you got to turn off the autopilot, but now you're hand flying it, and now we've got two things that are going on, and whether you can fix that or not becomes the definition of success or or fear if you will yeah yeah well you know we've been talking quite a bit about building airplanes general aviation and everything that goes along with it and sometimes you know you're working on projects and it's really hard to just keep that momentum going. And John was talking a little bit about how at AI Systems, you know, he was really able to have a professional team help him out, 14-hour days, you know, non-interrupted and just kind of working his way through the build. And now here he is at home and and you got to stop in the middle of a project that you had intention to get more done, but then you got to stop, go and to the store, find a part or a piece or a tool, and it really does slow down the the progress. Um, but we also see this out on the flight line. Um, and it, it's kind of a, a difficult thing to do, especially if you're in a home base airport. And uh, we see this a lot more so at a regional level than at a mainline level, because the regional level, it's kind of a smaller knit community usually. Uh, but I can remember, you know, running for a flight uh, between two legs, having to swap gates. And you've got like an hour between, uh, you know, legs and you think, oh, well, in that hour, I'm going to go and grab a bite to eat and, you know, maybe download my new flight plan and I have plenty of time to get to the airplane, airplane and, and do my pre-flight procedures. And you walk up to the terminal and boom, there's a buddy you had from new hire class or boom, there's a <laughs> captain you flew with. And next thing you know, you're like, hey, what you been doing, Tony? You know, and you're, you're catching up and you're. And you go, oh, man, I'm sorry, I got to go. I got a flight to catch. And then you realize, well, I never grabbed a bite to eat or I never was able to print out that flight plan because I got distracted. Well, this happened to me just yesterday, actually, um, going through DFW. Uh, I was uh, in Fort Walton Beach on a layover the night before. Uh, did a nice, beautiful kickoff flight. Got to see some F-35s take off. And That's always fun. Oh, my God. You know, the jet bridge, I was walking down the jet bridge to 
to go and do a pre-flight on this aircraft, a uh, kickoff flight in the morning, and the whole jet bridge just started vibrating. The sound was just so loud, and you know, a group of F-35s had just taken off, and wow, you know, I get out there, try to videotape as much as I could with my cell phone, which of course, you know, didn't do it justice, but, um, and for those that uh, follow the Squawk Ident on the Instagram, I did post a, a little slow-mo video. I had the, the opportunity to catch one taken off right in front of us as we were taxiing out. So it was, it was pretty cool to see and experience. So, but here we are, you know, flew to DFW, and then I had to swap airplanes and then DFW to LA, and I was done for the day. Well, of course, I walk up to the gate, and I look up from my phone because I feel someone staring at me. And here's my new hire sim partner who happened to be the FO that brought in the aircraft I was taking out. Next thing you know, Hey man, what's going on, Mike? You know, so we're chit chatting about what's going on, what's going on with the industry. I got to meet his captain that he's been flying with. And we sat there at the gate for a good 15 minutes, just talking about <laughs> this and that. And then they, the, the gate agent says, uh, we are now starting boarding for legacy flight. You know, I was like, oh crap, I better get down there and do a pre-flight and walk around all that stuff. I got to get, I got to get working. So yeah, you can easily get distracted, not just at home with your home projects, but you know, in the hangar there with your build, have you seen the distractions go up immensely now as you're in your home airport and you know, the, the people around you? Oh yeah. There, I mean, the amount of exposure to distractions is exponential out here. I mean, I've, I'm in a kind of a hangar community on an airport. So there's about 150 hangars. So, um, you know, people always say, if, if, if you want to get work done, close your hangar door, lock your doors and park your car far away from your hangar. Oh, your car that too. Way no one will know you. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't want, you don't want anyone to know you're around. Um, cause I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously a community out here. So everyone wants to knock on their, Hey, how's it going? What are you up to today? Can I help you with anything? And um, while all that's appreciated and, you know, it's always great to be social and hang out with guys and you, you get in a conversation and then two weeks later, like, oh, uh, Hey, I really, sh really should get back to this thing. Um, old car or a toy or a motorcycle or something. And of course I want to go see it. And then, you know, you just write off the rest of the day. I mean, yeah. <laughs> just at that point, you're like, well, my, my ability to get work done today is gone. So I'm going to go have some fun. So you, you, you have to fight that uh, every stretch, you know, every day, just cause there's, there's building, which is fun, but there's also flying, which is more fun. And, you know, just hanging out with friends and stuff. There's, there's always stuff to do. Yeah. And you know, I, I kind of find the same way of tackling things around the house. Um, I often get distracted, but what I'll do is I'll put in some earbuds, uh, put my phone in my back pocket and I'm out there in the tool shed and I'm listening to a podcast and, I hate to say it, but then, you know, the family comes out and they start talking to me and I, I don't respond because I can't hear them. <laughs> and they're like, oh God, he's listening to a podcast again. <laughs> so, but that helps yep. because it does, you know, I stopped getting the uh, distractions. I don't know how healthy that is for the <laughs> family dynamics, but you know, uh, yeah, it does. Sometimes you just want to get shit done and you know, you, you gotta, you gotta just muscle through it and not get distracted. For sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, take the good days with the bad days you know, as far as how much you're able to get done. And as long as you're making some progress every day, that's a step forward. You know, and I, I recently saw that you didn't get much work done what day before yesterday because you had a buddy show up with an extra and you, did you get to fly? Yeah, um, 
Yeah, I had a, a couple friends that have access to pretty cool airplanes. So yeah, I was out uh, messing around in an extra 330 LX, which is a, a pretty pretty good hot rod of an airplane. Uh, I think it's got a, a, a roll rate of, it's like 410 degrees a second, or it, it's something ridiculous. Um, and so we were going up, uh, trying to toss each other's lunch and, uh, you know, unsuccessfully, fortunately, but you know, I, you feel like you, you get a two day hangover from just the G's. I think it was about six and a half or seven positive G's and negative three G's or something was the, the most I saw yesterday, which for me, cause I'm unpracticed, uh, just, bruh, you know, you just get a headache that lasts for a day and it's a blast. Um, but, uh, yeah, you feel it the next day. Yeah. And is it because of the what is it? The blood rush into your head that, that creates uh, a well, feeling. Yeah. G force fatigue. And, uh, just you're putting your body in a position that it's not normal. Like we were doing tumbles, which means like the tail is going in front of the nose, yeah. you know? And so probably did like six or seven of those in a row. <laughs> you're just like, Bruh. Roger, have you ever done and, tumbles uh, in the uh, Falcon? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's yeah. a normal maneuver. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Oh, I'll time. Yeah. Well, maybe in, Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020. <laughs> but and what's the deal with that? You know, I, I keep seeing these videos pop up. Oh, check out this hard landing. And I, and I look at it for like two seconds and I realize, okay, that's a, that's a video game. But these people are posting mm. these videos. Oh, check out this hard landing. The guy survived. And, and not just airplanes, but, you know, car wreckage and stuff. And it's a video game, but people are thinking it's real and they're reposting it and it's, it's fake news, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Clickbait, trying to get, trying to get Clickbait, views. Yeah, and and you were doing it in real life. And tell me, there's video yeah. of this happening. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's fun. It, you know, it's a, you know, we've got so many facets of aviation. You got Roger here, you know, the Part 91 Charter, that kind of stuff. You know, us airline guys, and then you've got kind of the recreational and aerobatic, you know, performance, instructional, and um, competitive side and of which I'm none of those. I'm not competitive instructional or, you know, showing I'm not an air show pilot by any means. Um, just fun. Um, so yeah, it's cool, cool to be involved in all the, as many aspects of aviation as I can. So in the, let's, let's wrap it up today with catching up with what we've been up to in the past few days or the past few weeks, you know, John, we kind of, we know you've been working hard at the hangar there. What about yep. work? I know that from the last episode, we know that you took a leave of absence uh, in an effort to get this project done, take this opportunity here. Is this leave of absence uh, going to go on much longer? And is the potential for furlough for mainline carrier pilots uh, going to affect you at all? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, I've been, I haven't uh, flown a 737 since March and I've been on a leave of absence because of the COVID slowdown in flight schedules. Um, and, you know, as we talked about earlier, October 1st was kind of the, the big day where furlough started. Um, my furlough uh, or zero timeline essentially starts in uh, November 1st. So in another what, 28 days or so, then I'll be, you know, kind of officially uh, unpaid and just kept uh, kept up to date on training with my airline, but, you know, no longer paid. Um, so, yeah, that's a big change of pace, uh, knowing that, hey, kind of the the light at the end of the tunnel is a train and it's coming towards me pretty quickly. Um, 
I feel for the guys that are furloughed two days ago because they're that train's already hit them. Um, so kind of planning out the life and how you're going to manage finances and schedules. And, you know, if I can do anything else, I mean, if push comes to shove, I'll walk across the street and start driving forklifts for a living, you know, in the meantime to, to make, make dues. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting times. And, uh, obviously the time off up till now has been great to work on this airplane and this project and, you know, enjoy other aspects of life, but the, you know, meeting your maker with, uh, knowing that your career is going to be put on significant hold possibly for the next unknown amount of time. Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, Roger is very fortunate and we've, we, we've kind of scratched the surface with this. There was a time months ago where Roger and I were under direct communication constantly about getting him in the door, you know, and it was like, come on, man, it's time to get on to a legacy carrier. Look at how many pilots are being hired. The future is bright. And we were working diligently to get him on board here at legacy airlines. And then he goes, uh, hit the brakes. Hold. I think I'm happy where I'm at right now. <laughs> and this, you know, cycle has really turned into a huge, uh, detriment to the airline pilot career. Roger, how are you handling the part 91 scene? Is it affecting you at all? I think that it's affecting everybody to some degree. However, um, to be honest, it's affecting me much less than much less than the airline, the airline world. If anything else, there's been, I think a little, and this is outside of what I do, what I do personally, but it, but from what I've, witnessed and read it it looks like the private aviation sector's been a, a little bit more resilient and come back a little bit faster if nothing else because some of those people that that might have been maybe flying first class on on your big three carriers are now going well instead of flying commercially we'll spend a little bit more money and we'll fly on a charter carrier and and so i think i've i've been seeing a little bit of that and because I fly just part 91 for, for private owners, not a lot has changed for them. There was definitely a slowdown with the whole world back in March and April and even into May. But then when, once summer started rolling around, things started ramping back up. And now, I mean, to be quite honest, I'm, I've been working my tail off for the past month and with not really any end in sight right now. Well, that's great because for those pilots that may potentially be looking for work, uh, maybe that is an opportunity to check out the Part 91 carriers, the Part 135 carriers. I know there's been a huge increase in job opportunities being posted on the social media forums that you know a lot of us aviators follow um, and really directed towards the 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 potentially furloughed pilots here we are you know on the 3rd of October 3 days into when the big trigger has been pulled actually this last week was kind of a a tough week for me flying the line because i flew with multiple crews and it was their last flight the flight attendants that were like hey can you can you come down and Take a picture of me in the engine nacelle with these other flight attendants because this is our last flight. We're all being furloughed tomorrow. And 
that was tough. And, and, and I feel for them. And I'm not necessarily in the same boat as them. I, like John, have a zero timeline starting November 1st. And, but there are ways to kind of pick up flying bits and pieces and scraps. How that's going to work, we have no idea until it mm-hmm. happens. Um, I've joined some of the, the boards out there for the zero timeline pilots for LAX uh, on the bus. And uh, John, I'm sure you've, you've joined some boards there for the 737 out of Chicago. Um, and what those boards are, are really meant to do is the way these zero timelines affect us is different than a furlough. A furlough is turning your badge, turning your, your, your books. Uh, unfortunately, you no longer work for the company and you can collect unemployment or find another job. And we will call you when we have a position for you and they'll call you back in seniority order. How long that's going to take, that's a guess to anyone. Nobody knows. If the CARES Act 2 extension gets extended in the next couple days or a period of time, weeks, potentially all of the furloughed pilots, flight attendants, gate agents, mechanics, uh, you name it, could be recalled because that'll be a caveat in the CARES Act that it's, you, have, you have to bring everybody back and pay them. That's the whole point of getting the, the finances is for payroll protection. If that doesn't happen, if this gets dragged out, then what's going to happen is they're going to go ahead with the furloughs. And at least here at Legacy Airlines with these zero timeline pilots, basically you're senior enough to where you're not getting furloughed, but for six months, you're going to have a zero timeline, meaning you cannot bid for your schedule. So you have zero hours. It's like working at, say, the gap and not being on the schedule. Well, what good does that do you? You're not making any money, but you're still gainfully employed. So with the airline, at least at Legacy, and I know Delta United and American and Southwest and, and Alaska and so, so on and so forth, they all have a little bit different plans and different options for this furlough mitigation program. Um, but I was speaking with a jump seater that I had just yesterday that was over at United and they were talking about what they're offering. Um, I actually had another jump seater a couple of days ago that was from Delta and we had a conversation very similar, uh, to what options that their junior pilots had for them. And so everyone's a little bit different. Uh, over here at Legacy Airlines, it's uh, the zero time lines. You can still pick up flying potentially, but it's not flying that's in open time. It's not flying that you're trying to pick up for like a makeup flying, or you can only pick up flying that somebody wants to get rid of. So if pilot A says, uh, I don't want to fly that trip. I got something going on. They could post it for drop and then you could pick it up. The problem with this is if they just post to the job board or the schedule board that I want to drop it, what's stopping a pilot that's gainfully employed that's more senior to say, oh, I want that trip, and they pick it up? Well, that does no good to the zero-time pilot. So there have been social media boards that have been created so that you can go on that social media board, and as a gainfully employed full schedule pilot, if you want to drop a trip, instead of posting on the company's job board, you go to the social media board that is a closed group and you can say, hey guys, I have a trip I'm trying to drop. If you want it, direct message me and 
we'll do a pilot to pilot trade with cruise scheduling. And that way, as a zero time pilot, you can pick up a trip and not have to worry about someone picking it up in front of you that's more senior to you. Um, so I've joined these boards. A lot of us have talked about this uh, in the industry about joining these boards to help picking up this flying. Now, all of this could be a, a moot point here in the next few days. As a matter of fact, as we're recording this podcast on uh, Saturday morning, uh, I'm receiving notifications uh, that, you know, Pelosi had just posted a thing uh, this morning uh, encouraging United and American Airlines to not furlough. And I'll put a link in the show notes uh, about this this article. And she's pleading them, hey, the, it, the passing of this CARES 2 is imminent. Please don't furlough and then have to recall them because it's going to pass. And only a few, hour, a few hours later, as we're here, we're recording, uh, I got another posting saying, no, it was just shut down by Rand Paul because he thinks this, the, the budget's way too high. Uh, Republicans don't like that, and therefore they put a stop to it. So there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of what we termed as whipsawing. Um, it's going to pass. It's not going to pass. And it's so stressful right now for everyone in the aviation community at the legacy level. Uh, if you know a pilot or a flight attendant or, or, or an employee that works for a mainline airline right now in the U.S., the, the next few days and possibly weeks are going to be extremely stressful for those that are junior and potentially their jobs are on the chopping block. So our hearts go out to everyone involved. Um, th the best thing we can do is support each other at this time. Unfortunately, their people uh, tend to be pretty bold on the internet. So we're on, when they're on the line, and I'm talking about the internet, not the flight line, they tend to be pretty brazen in opinions. And we see this in every aspect of society. And we have what's going on right now. We're dubbing it as the social media wars. And Roger, I don't know if you've heard this, but there are junior pilots posting very negative attributes to senior pilots saying, I'm doing my last flight and this jackass of a captain is uh, talking about selling his third house and, and trying to buy a boat. And meanwhile, I'm, my job's gone. This is my last flight. I'm being furloughed. I'm going to get a call tomorrow to say, turn in your badge. And they don't, they're so disconnected with the reality of what's going on and they don't care because it's like, well, it's your problem. You knew what you were getting into in, in this industry. Why should it, why should I worry about it? I've been furloughed before. I suffered through economic downturns and 9-11 and all this stuff. I was furloughed for 12 years when one captain was uh, reported as saying, why should I worry about you being furloughed for six months or, or possibly longer? So there's a lot of animosity going on. The social media wars have begun. Shaming has begun online. And I, I just got to say, stop it. Stop. You know, we, there's truth to both sides. Yes. We all know what we were getting into. This is a very cyclical industry. It doesn't matter if it's part 121 or part 135 or part 91. It's a cyclical industry. It just, it's very much mirrored to how healthy our economy is. And right now, our economy is very unhealthy, regardless of what the Dow Jones Industrial Average is right now, you know, regardless of what interest rates are. Our economy is, is, is very fragile. 
and as is our industry. So, John, Roger, have you experienced any of these online, you know, attacks between pilots within the same group of aviators? And, and what are your thoughts on that? Oh, well, yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've uh, you know, like we talked about last time, uh, for the majority of this, I've been hap- happily away from it all. Um, you know, my, my beard's long enough to know that I haven't been at work in a while, and I try and stay off the uh, internet chat rooms and boards because, you know, people are posturing, you know, spewing nonsense and just being angry towards each other. And that's, that's not something I like to surround myself with. So, um, and none of it matters at the end of the day, you know, Congress or management or the union, they're going to do what they're going to do. And therefore I'm just along for the ride. So, uh, my two cents or other people's random two cents doesn't, doesn't really affect me or, you know, I, I, no reason to waste time in the day yeah, with it. Stay away from it for sure. Yeah. You know, I haven't, I, I'm, this go around, I haven't experienced any of that just because I'm in a very different position. I'm not in so much of a pilot versus pilot um, situation like you guys kind of are. You know, if it was only so easy, like you said, Tony, it's like if everyone would just stop, if it was that easy, it would be obviously so much simpler. The world's a complex place. I've been furloughed um, before. And there was some of that all the way back then, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, really. Um, it's one of those things that's just sad. I don't, I don't even really know what to say about it. The internet's made everything worse. I find it sad. Um, Tony, you alluded to it earlier. John, you just said it now. And kind of just avoiding it and turning some of the media and the news feeds off. I don't have any social media for this, for this reason. In the end, most people are selfish. I'm selfish. I think both of you are probably selfish because in the end, that's a normal, I mean, that's something that keeps us alive. You know, how far you let that go is, I think, kind of what defines us as an individual. And some people take it farther than I wish they would. And that's some of what I think that you were just alluding to there, Tony, in terms of the the more senior pilots, you know, well, I'm going to get mine. And that's whatever you got to do. You, that's that's your problem. Yeah. It's human nature, you yeah. know, and, and it, it, we really have to kind of be cognizant of that fact and, and realize that if us aviators stuck together, now we're not ever going to all agree. That's impossible. But if we just stuck together and backed each other up and respect each other for our opinions as different as they may be, we would have a lot more power in terms of quality of life, quality of our profession. If we'd stuck together and worked together and not attacked each other simply because their opinions are different or, you know, if we just stopped and listened to each other and really give sympathy, I think that goes a lot longer way than attacking a particular group for just them maybe not caring or not caring enough. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but there's good news on the horizon. Um, 
it does seem that all the sources and all the the media that have been covering this aviation, uh, really, it's an aviation pandemic. It's a pandemic of of a disaster of 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 a huge downturn that's unlike any other that we've kind of experienced before. Uh, I, I think that there's going to be relief. Now, whether or not that relief is just a band aid, that'll take a decade to repair. I don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, but in a press release uh, from uh, October 2nd, from Washington, D.C., Speaker Nancy Pelosi issued a statement calling on airlines to hold off on furloughs and firing as an agreement for relief for airline workers is being reached. The massive, and this is a, a quote from her, uh, the massive furlough as and firings of Americans' airline workers jeopardize the livelihood of tens of thousands and threaten to accelerate the devastating economic crisis facing our nation. Today, I am calling upon the airlines to delay their devastating job cuts as relief for airline workers is being advanced in Congress. She further uh, goes on to say, we will either enact Chairman DeFazio's bipartisan standalone legislation or achieve this as part of a comprehensive negotiated relief bill extending for another six months the payroll support program. This initiative is focused solely on the workers, keeping them on the payroll so these workers maintain their critical training and certification requirements unique to their industry. Uh, furthermore, she says, as a relief for airline workers is being advanced, the airline industry must delay these devastating job cuts. Now, this was posted last night, very late. Um, this uh, press release. And today there's a lot going on, even though it's a Saturday, it's a lot going on. I truly believe that, that there's going to be some good news here for our industry and for our pilots, at least for uh, a short period of time. Um, but, but either way, no matter how this pans out, uh, you know, it's smart to have always a backup plan. We talk about this, uh, from, from private pilot days, to, to today. Always have a backup plan. You know, don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket in aviation. Always have something else that you can do, an idea at minimum, uh, and, and enough money set aside that regardless if it's a furlough or an economic downturn or a natural disaster that, that may cripple you for a period of time, that you have enough to keep afloat. Uh, so as, as a pilot, uh, I can tell you that that affects us more than I think any other industry. So gentlemen, I want to thank you for, for spending the time to uh, talk about these, these tough subjects, uh, these, you know, the furloughs and the fabrications and, you know, the, the time uninterrupted to get the job done. Uh, and, and, and the, the importance of maintaining proficiency in the stick and rudder skills that really define us as pilots. So thank you for being here today. Uh, I do appreciate your time and your input. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, John, for those that would like to follow your feed and keep track of your video logs with your build, where can they find you? I'm on Instagram at Lancer underscore legacy. Uh, and then um, if uh, on Facebook, uh, just under my name, Jonathan Gruber. Uh, but I, I, every day that I'm working, I post. So um, if I'm out for two hours, three hours, 10 hours, I'll post something about the day uh, just to kind of keep my builders long going. Um, 
And that's just kind of a, a separate account that I have just for the airplane. So yeah, if you want to see something or if you have questions, I've had a lot of people uh, DM me asking about specific questions or trying to post uh, certain videos about topics they want to see. Um, hit me up and I'll be glad to do it for you. Excellent. Well, thank you again for uh, for being here. And it's uh, so great to uh, keep up with the build and uh, keep us updated on the major development. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I'm sure I'm sure we'll talk again. And uh, hopefully every time we talk, I'll uh, have a lot more work done. Excellent. Well, that just about wraps up episode 57 of Squawk Ident, Fabrications and Magenta Lines. If you enjoyed this episode of Squawk Ident, we encourage you to visit our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There, you can leave us feedback, contribute to the podcast to help us keep up with marketing and equipment demands. You can also leave us some audio feedback and show topic ideas. We encourage you to check out our many photos and follow us on the social media accounts. Facebook and Instagram users can search Squawk Ident Podcast and check us out now on YouTube. Just look up Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. Make sure you like, subscribe, and share. In closing, I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. Bye, everyone. Hey, we'll see you later, man. Take care, Johnny. See ya.